Welcome. Thank you. And good evening. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art and also to introduce Anna Gritz, who is currently in Australia as a curatorial attaché with the Biennale of Sydney, curated by Stephanie Rosenthal, which opened last week. And I'd like to thank the Australia Council and also the Biennale of Sydney for their support in, um, in uh, supporting Anna's visit to Melbourne. Um, Anna is the recently appointed co-director of the Schinkel Pavilion in Berlin, which is a focus upon contemporary sculpture, installation and media art, and which is also known for its distinctive octagonal pavilion architecture designed in 1969, which remains an eccentric monument of post-war architecture in the former East Germany. Anna has previously worked as a curator at the South London Gallery and also the ICA in London. And recent curatorial activities include a series of wonderfully titled projects, including Da, Art and Stupidity, co-curated with Paul Clinton, which is currently at the Focal Point Gallery, South End on Sea in the UK, Sand in the Vaseline in Mexico City last year in 2015, My Vocabulary Did This to Me at the South London Gallery in 2014, Last Seen Entering the Biltmore, South London Gallery also 2014, Modern Draperies in 2013, and ASCO, Your Art Disgusts Me, focusing upon ASCO, the LA-based Chicano art collective who were active in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 70s. At the ICA, Anna was curator of Soundworks in 2012 and Dissonance and Disturbance, surveying the work of the wonderful artist and feminist filmmaker Liz Rhodes in 2012. Anna's writing has been included in Art Monthly, Art Agenda, Freeze, Moose and Cura, among other catalogues and books. Tonight, Anna will offer reflections upon her role with the current Biennale of Sydney, which is titled The Future Is Already Here, It's Just Not Evenly Distributed, and her wider activities and interest in the politics of translation, performativity, and identity construction. So without further ado, please welcome Anna Gritz. Thank you, Max, for this wonderful introduction. And um, just to start with a couple of thanks um, to Alison Lesak um, for organizing this talk and for hosting me here so generously in Melbourne, to Max, of course, and also just to the Australian Arts Council, to the Sydney Biennale, and to GOMA for bringing me here to Australia on a trip that has been a true pleasure throughout at the moment and a really instructive experience. Um, before I'm going to start my talk, I'm actually just going to quickly do a, an excursion into the world of popular music and I'm going to explain a little bit why I'm doing that in a second or two. Ah, there we go.
I think this is a good point to stop. Um, we might be able to listen to a little bit more of it later. So this was Hotline Bling by the musician Drake. And I'm referencing it because it became the center of a conversation about translation that I recently had with the artists Adam Linda and Nina Bayer as part of a kind of Skype conversation that was to go in this publication of the Sydney Biennial catalog. So um, I was one of the attaches as Matt Sets, and um, I think um, each attaché that Stephanie drew on was brought in for very, very different reasons. And mine was that um, we had an ongoing conversation about the act of restaging performance, of translation, um, of recontextualization. So this kind of became quite naturally the center of my involvement. Um, so as part of this conversation, to my surprise, we kept on coming back to Drake. And um, it became kind of the major interest of us in relation to how um, kind of themes are being remixed or kind of remodeled and brought together quite easily in the world of popular music. And it's still something that, although it happens all the time in contemporary art, it's still a bit of a topic of contestation. Um, Nina Blyer brought up the term rhythm as something that describes rhythmic patterns that are handed down from generations, something that virtually all reggae songs are um, kind of based on. And um, Adam went on to point out in the conversation that obviously the video clearly references James Turrell's um, iconic lights, um, light architectural structures, and kind of mixing it and making it available within the fluidity and the mass appeal of the music video. Um, and then further on within this terrestrial kind of landscape, um, Drake goes on to perform a dance that has been multiply um, repeated in, or recontextualized in memes following, but um, that Linda seemed to identify as the dance style bachata, a social dance that has its origin in the Dominican Republic. And um, he really thought that it's a form of appropriation or remixing that um, kind of puts the, the kind of social body within a kind of idealized space of, or a space for an idealized spectator. And this idealized kind of moment of the encounter is usually um, kind of maybe spoken about within a kind of white kind of um, mainstream culture context and here bringing two very different kind of ideas of um, how you use cultural material together. So and as I said from here on Drake has been the video has been re-shown with Bollywood sounds, with ballet um, everybody seems to recognize a different kind of reference in his form of dancing. So as I said, I'm going to speak about translation, and I would like to um, embed my position in the Embassy of Translation a bit um, more closely at hand of one of the works in the show. It's a work by Shaya Nashat based on a choreography by Adam Linder, and the work is called Parade. And then I would like to um, maybe um, um, explore a couple of different ways of how translation can take place in artistic practice and then bring it back to a personal interest in maybe how um, performativity and identity construction can exist in the same space. Um, so the first work that I'm talking about is Adam oh, Shaya Nashat's film Parade. And um, it is based on a stage choreography by Linda that is in itself based on a ballet that Jean Cocteau wrote in the earliest 20th century. Um, but to give you a bit of a better idea of what I'm talking about, I'm going to show you three short clips that are excerpts of a 40-minute um, uh, film.
So this was the trailer for the film, and now I'm showing you two excerpts from two of the main characters. This is the acrobat. Now the American girl.
All right, so um, Linda premiered this version um, of the ballet um, at 2013 at the Howe Theatre in Berlin, and it was later adapted by Shaya for the Berlin Biennial. But Shaya Nashad was already very involved in the stage version by, for example, designing the entire set for the piece. Um, the original ballet by Jean Cocteau was created in 1917 and was based on a collaboration between Cocteau the composer Eric Satie and the then Cubist painter Pablo Picasso. Cocteau wrote the scene, Satie co-produced the music, and Picasso worked on the set and the costume design. The one-act ballet is centered on a publicity parade in which a group of circus artists attempt to draw an audience into the theater. Cocteau describes it as follows. The scene represents a Sunday art fair in Paris. There's a traveling theater and three musical turns are employed as, parade, as a parade. There is a Chinese conjurer, an American girl, and a pair of acrobats. Three managers are occupied in advertising the show. They tell each other that the crowd in front is confusing the outside performance with the show and is about, which is about to take place. And they try in the crudest fashion to introduce the public and to draw it into the theater. But the crowd remained unconvinced. Parade was back then revolutionary for a couple of reasons, mainly for the act of bringing kind of street forms of street, street theater into the fine art of the high stage. In his version of Parade, Linda does not only adapt the play, but he, in a way, actualizes it, examining the way in which marketing and reception, as well as self-promotion, affect the character of artistic works, if not becomes an essential part of it. Linda states on this, I started working on this staged reinterpretation of Cocteau's ballet because I thought that the original conceit of Parade felt so relevant even 100 years later. It was almost like Cocteau was too early in his ideas, and that we as an audience needed more time to catch up with all the references, the metaphors, and the stylistic innovations that his ballet proposed. He speaks of this stage version as a form of a press release, conflating promotion and performance. For the set design, Nasha draws on this observation and actually creates an aesthetic of a standard and industrial fair, or maybe um, a boutique flagship store, um, further emphasizing the kind of promotional value of the historic work by creating this parade logo that is repeated in a very self-referential style across the whole kind of back set. Um, in his version, Cocteau spurred already all these ideas about mediation of artistic work, self-design of performed identities, and notions of cultural branding. And Linda wanted to take this idea to the next level. He said, I became aware that by making a reinterpretation, if a highly subjective and by no means a construction, I was using a historical resource for my own benefit. So Linda and Nashad are using the branding motif very consciously here, well aware of the kind of cultural cachet that comes along with kind of associating oneself with historic established practices. Linda's mission was to reinterpret a historical work as a way of addressing forms of artistic claiming or branding. The content itself plays a secondary role here, with the main focus being on the structure of the communicative apparatus, the press release, the teaser, the social network, all the supposed back matter that entertains an audience in lieu of the actual piece. 
while acknowledging that this gesture is very much in line with the theoretical objective of the historical piece, he's not simply translating a historical piece into his own language, but beyond inserting his current position into a chain of already existing translations that are more concerned with the methodology of the work than its content, maybe even equating the two. A chain that continues further with Nashat's filmic adaptation that not only kind of documents the piece, but makes the camera an active participant in the ballet and thinking much more than just historic, than translating historic material, how one can translate one material into another, one genre into another. However, before I speak a bit more about ideas of translation, I would like to quickly embed the project a little bit in Stephanie Rosenthal's biennial. So Stephanie Rosenthal says about the biennial that if every era or period has its own take on reality, what is ours? Because of our increasing dependence on the virtual world of the internet, we inhabit a space where the physical and the virtual are increasingly overlapping. And this space of overlap is really kind of a core concern across the entire biennial. So many artists attempt to access this in-between space where the virtual and the physical fold into each other, making use of the opportunities, but also are very aware of the potential alienation and the isolation that this space can bear. The exhibition is structured around seven thematic clusters um, called embassies of thought. So she relies quite heavily on the kind of the language around embassies, calling her advisory team attaches, maybe referencing the fact that actual embassies have the ability of being a, a space for free thinking that they don't always um, fulfill. The other embassies are the embassy of the real, the embassy of translation, the embassy of non-participation, of spirits, of transition, of Stanislav Lem, and the embassy of disappearance. And if any of you were at the talk by Adrian Lepecki yesterday at Monash University, you will have heard a little bit more about his involvement with the embassy of um, disappearance, but you would have also seen how closely related the two embassies are, as his thinking very closely relates to kind of disappearance as a way of making space for then bringing something back to life, or kind of reinvigorating it through translation, or also trans <laughs> transmission in a way. So some of the key terms that she's using for the embassy of translation is reinvention, reenactment, inscription, rereading, and I would like to add here also a form of misreading of using historical material as a form of raw material that um, cannot only be used kind of within its original frame, but also taken to a, a maybe a misread stage by making it kind of a new potential. So it gathers together artists that revisit historical positions, but also that um, work from one material into another, or just think of a way of translation as a way of making something available much more in the kind of original sense of translating something into another language, a form of care and maybe a form of preservation. I'm especially interested here in the form, in this overlap between the digital and the virtual and also um, the technology of the desktop and as a space where we research but also produce, so a space that very clearly already confuses production with research and therefore just the ideal space to make translation happening. As you can imagine, the term translation can quickly become very vague here because isn't any gesture a form of translation, isn't any kind of artistic perspective that we are offered a form of kind of translating the world around us? And I'm sure that is, but I think what Stephanie Rosenthal is after is something a little bit more specific. Um, 
and I think it's, it's based on the urge um, to investigate how artists deal with a past that is now so much more readily available to us after kind of an archival impulse in the last 20 years and with kind of the emergence of huge data banks on our computer screens through the internet. So it is a strategy that goes beyond artistic working methods and that comes closer to a form of historic revisionism. And I'm thinking here especially as a form of, of a feminist methodology that um, finds ways to reauthor historical perspective through claiming it, and especially perspective that maybe historically have been denied to women or other marginalized positions. I'm thinking of practices such as Sturtevant's that deal with repetition, um, or Andrea Frazier's brilliant performance piece, Art Must Hang, in which she restages gesture by gesture and word for word, um, a very kind of self-conscious, macho opening speech by the himself self-ironically posing as, an, as the artist um, by Martin Kippenberger, kind of very aware of his position as the kind of iconic German painter. So the concept of repetition is crucial here, of understanding difference as something based on context. For Sturtevant, the aura of the artwork is based on, not on authenticity and authorial vision, but on the work's specific spatial, temporal, and discursive setting. With her radical gesture of repeating the work of her male contemporaries, she makes explicit that novelty and repetition do not have to be at odds with each other, and is in sync with voices such as Karl Valentin, a German comedian from the early 20th century, who put it as, everything has been said already, but not by everyone. Translation has become a tool for our engagement with historical material. It presents one alternative to the archive that questions existing chronologies and hierarchies that are so readily inscribed into our consciousness as fixed entities through our obsession with the archive and that what actually can be archived, maybe marginalizing things that are not as readily available to the kind of archival structures that we have been working with. So in that way, translation can be understood as a form of transformation through recontextualization. And in the spirit of Borges, translation is therefore by its nature, not by its nature, inferior to the original, but much more problematizing issues of authority, of the original, of fidelity, negating the concept of a definite text or an original acclaim, and instead arguing for the creative potential in reclaiming and misreading historical narratives. In performance, the score or the instruction piece is the ultimate tool for rep for repetition, staking out the parameters of a piece and giving it therefore the potential for repetition. The score takes here an interesting kind of almost achronological position that is at once conception, production, documentation, and can function as a stand-in for the actual work. The question of when is saying something, doing something, gains a new importance when faced with a score-based work. In the next work that I'm discussing, it is a piece that is not in the biennial. There are two forms of translation at play. The translation from the text or the score to the actions of the players, and the translation of a physical object representing a social dynamic to the social dynamic itself. Maybe start with this image. So I'm talking about the Australian artist, although based in Berlin for many years, Gary Bibby's performative installation. Here it happened at the Artist Institute in New York entitled Compensation Action, a work that would later in a second iteration at Studiolo in Zurich be called the Five Stages Liberation Project. 
With the help of this example, I would like to illustrate the unstable position of both objects and bodies in exhibition spaces today and how the body of the performer can take on a curious position in between a passive artwork and that is to be watched and consumed while objects themselves can be staged as performative agents, creating a self-conscious exchange between body and object. My interest lies in how the status treatment and responsibility of both body and object has been blurred, invoking a chain of transference or translation, if you want it, in which both can stand in for each other. Gary Bibby works across various media, such as installation, performance, publication, and publishing in general. If his art would be the theater, it would be the location of the backstage, this place of rehearsals, of props, of sets, of objects with a repurposable nature. Um, he's very interested in the kind of support structure, the infrastructure that makes institutional work or artistic work in general possible. Here, for compensation action, Bibi identified the main gallery table in a small exhibition space as the place of authority, as the keeper of institutional authority and therefore the object to address with his action. The table was, as in so many galleries, the place where the gallery employee would sit and work and welcome the visitors, where all sorts of transactions would take place, a key object in the gallery's identity and a place of um, kind of signifying where we are at and the nature of the space. The work itself begins with the notes to the players that I'm showing you, I'm not quite sure if it's readable, that states, action, the aim is to liberate a, a vital structural component of this location and in doing, endow this new object with a symbolic value, allow it to achieve a use value not predicated by those aforementioned functions. So for Bibi, this was a way of stripping objects of their habitual meaning, to dress them up in what he calls language costumes, and reimagining them in, in previously unaccustomed ways. To do that, he then continues to amputate one of the table legs, leaving the table precarious and quite unstable. Then he remedies this kind of instability through a social prosthetic, a cast of four players or performers sourced from his circle of friends that would come regularly to the gallery space and sit on the oppositioning side of the table leg, kind of counterbalancing um, the imbalance created by the amputation. Um, the players would arrive equipped with a, a bag of concrete that was a quarter of their weight um, in, actually it's cement, and every time the performers would not be present, these bags, these accumulated bags of cement would kind of stand in for the bodies and kind of keep the table balanced. In this work, Bibi does not only identify a piece of furniture as a symbol and keeper of authority, but he goes on to undermine it, to translate it into a collaborative scenario that sits between sculpture, performance, and installation. The act of bringing in members of his social circle shows the reliance of his practice on a support network of friends, but also um, a kind of having his friends stand in for himself, for the artist. These bodies enter into a collaboration with the institution here personified by the gallery desk, which through its new physical alteration is dependent on the body of the performer as a physical weight to maintain its precarious equilibrium um, that the artwork, well, in this case, in a way the whole institution rests on. 
So during the run of the show, the obligatory gallery desk was resultantly absent. It had become an artwork, and there were, therefore it was not longer easily identifiable who was the gallery employee and who was the audience. And the performers in the space take on a curious intermediate between a furnishing, between people, between objectified um, kind of objects that have a mere function in the space and that would be consumed um, by the kind of visiting audience. So what Bibi does here is he, or he simultaneously renders bodies as passive while bestowing an agency to an object. And I think that performances like this question the power and the influence that the inanimate world can have in shaping us as bodies opposed to us being the ones creating and shaping them. So here the translation is less a question of reworking historic material, but much more of tempering and transforming a social dynamic. His transformative act can also be considered as a, and I'm quoting Karen Barra here, a move towards performative alternatives to representationalism, shifting the focus away from questions of correspondence between descriptions and reality to matters of practice, of doings, and of actions. Barra proposes a shift away from the power of language to actions is also an acknowledgement of the matter of matter as an actor in itself, not a thing but a doing, allowing for an understanding of matter as an unstable condition that is bound to change and that makes Barra rephrase identity as something constructed through events, through temporal occurrences and attitudes. She sees categories such as race and gender and sexuality as events, actions, and encounters between bodies rather than simply entities and attributes of subjects. Another work that I wanted to quickly comment on is a work by um, the choreographer Savile Roy and another choreographer called Martin Spanberg, and it's called Production. And it was commissioned for an exhibition at the Hayward Gallery that was also curated by Stephanie Rosenthal that was called Move Choreographing You and that was generally concerned with the way that artists in the past have choreographed our movements in exhibition spaces through scores or objects or other interventions. So similarly to Bibi's work, also this work situates itself in an institutional infrastructure. Um, to be more explicit, it, um, is a way to organize a group of performers that were asked to be in the exhibition space at all times that the exhibition was open to reperform a series of pieces by Simon Poforti, Robert Morris, Franz Erhard Walter, and Pablo Bronstein. So it was really, uh, these two artists were brought in to organize these bodies, to make them work in shifts within the exhibition space. Um, something that um, museums at this point, or until now, probably still are not equipped for. You have to think of rehearsal spaces, of break spaces, of changing rooms. And this was a way to um, do that with the performers. So it was a way of structuring human capital and to conceive of a metastructure that organizes them in the exhibition space, but also that bestows a form of agency to these bodies that were merely brought in to reactivate historical pieces. So what Xavier Leroy and Martin Spangberg went ahead to do was to um, com complexify the situation um, in, with the use of staged scenarios that they would embed into the kind of shift schedule of these performers. Um, closely commenting on questions such as labor and enjoyment, representation, leisure, and individual agency um, kind of within these structures.
So aside from the activation of these particular pieces that would happen at certain times a day, the group of performers was engaging the museum audience in conversation, refusing just to be the kind of passive object of spectatorship and kind of actively asking audience members why they were coming here. They could talk really about whatever they wanted, um, but often the conversation ended up circling around um, question of labor, question of kind of reimbursement for practice, um, the payment structures, really making the whole, the whole presence very transparent. In addition to this kind of part of their presence in the exhibition space, they were also allowed to rehearse their own scores or scores by other artists. So co-opting the time that they were paid for by the institution for their own labor, for their own work. Um, so one could divide, uh, could divide their presence into an active and a passive component, but it's really hard to say where, which one is the active one and which one is the passive one. It is, in a way, constantly being confused. So this was developed very closely with a group of participants. Um, and often the first time that as dancers or performers they had this opportunity to speak within their performances. So apart from the effect that the work can have on the visitors, one also has to consider it as a hugely emas emancipating process for the dancers themselves, who are encouraged to step out of the role of the silent, obedient facilitator um, of other people's choreographies and instead have a voice and opinion, opinion and to actively use the time to present their own work. It further comments on the demand for performativity outside of the exhibition space as a mode of existence for artists and cultural, cultural producers alike and that is going hand in hand with a growing interest in event and performative practices much beyond the gallery space and that um, um, has been called a material labor or kind of that is part of the cultural sector being understood as a service industry. And Jan Favert has um, explored this topic exhaustively in his writing. Dance and performance theorist Andre Lepecki, who spoke at Monash yesterday, positions dance and performance as a critical tools in the questions of performativity of identity seeing both as more than an invigorating factor for contemporary art, as something that provides the necessary tools for re-articulating social-political dimensions of the aesthetic, embracing its capital to critically decode forces already choreographing our gestures, habits, language, thoughts, tastes, and desires in the everyday. So he therefore sees dance and movement-based practices as a strategy that can help to unravel daily habitual performances outside of the context of art. And he goes on to say, dance finds itself in the unique position to disclose forms of societal manipulation through movement, while further demonstrating that it is possible to empower and change our own movement and resultantly the formation of our identity. I would like to end on this thought that proposes um, performance as a place for us to think about the potentiality and to imagine identity construction. And just on that note, leave you with a short clip by the artist Annika Strom. It's a piece that she recently restaged for an exhibition that I did at Focal Point Gallery, and it's called Seven Women Standing in the Way. And it um, kind of restages the maybe all too familiar gaggle of older women unconsciously blocking access while deeply engaged in conversation. Um, being very welcoming but still not refusing to kind of go out of their way. 
And um, the performance takes place during the opening of a gallery normally, right in front of the gallery space, restricting access through a very charming form of obstinance. And by restaging this mundane occurrence, Strum enlists so poignantly a sense of frustration with us, the audience, um, and a response to an age and gender group that is often associated with unproductivity and hindrance, questioning the very nature of our reaction to the situation and how our kind of socially conditioned response so, reactive, so actively reaffirms social forms of stereotyping. So have a quick look at this. you get the idea. I should preference to say that they were at a train station before because there was a dedicated train to the venue. But um, what is so brilliant about the piece, and she has performed it in a series of different places, that she always works with a local art, like local public, so with women that she sources and explains the piece quite closely to. And um, it's, so it's always kind of a, also um, a snapshot of a certain populace of that area, in this case, um, South Island Sea, which is a very kind of specific place in Essex. Um, um, often associated with um, maybe a leisure culture. It's a kind of a seaside town. And um, so seeing kind of this group of friends um, was, I think, for the local audience, quite recognizable as kind of their own group of people. But I think I've reached the end of my talk, so if there are any questions, I'm happy to take them now. If you want to just pop up your hand and I'll bring around the microphone. No? Okay. Well, please join me in thanking Anna for her fantastic talk tonight. Thank you.